Welcome to Truth Triumphant Radio. I'm your host, Cody Mori, and it's been a little bit since our last discussion, actually a few months. And the reason for that is a lot of people have contacted me asking me when the podcast was going to continue again, and uh, I apologize. There has been an emergency for many of you. Many of you do know, but some of you don't. I'm actually not a full-time minister. I, I have a separate job. I work in construction, and um, we had an emergency at work, uh, obviously a pretty large emergency because it took up about three months of my life. And trying to find the good work, uh, family balance, time balance there, which is so critical, uh, was very tough during that time. But the Lord saw me through, and there was some stressful points. But the Lord, the Lord in the end vindicated the work, and the work has now come to. It's not completely done yet because you still have inspections and things going on. For those of you in construction, you know exactly what I'm talking about, especially when you're in a big job. It takes quite a bit to get all the various inspections completed before you are what you'd call done done. And even then, uh, most companies have a warranty process where if something happens at the job site or something, uh, within one year it's usually replaced or fixed for free. So anyhow... So we're not completely out of the woods, so to speak, but we have calmed down quite a bit. I've learned a lot at my job and grown a lot uh, as a person in these very, very harsh uh, three months, at least for me, they were harsh. And I praise the Lord for getting me through it, but I'm back. And if, as long as there's nothing else going on, I'm not going to stop putting these podcasts up. I know people really like them. I know people really appreciate them, and judging by the emails and comments and things like that that I've received from many of you, uh, I knew that I had to get back to this as soon as I possibly could, and I did. So um, I appreciate all the emails and all the uh, the wonderful things that you've said and encouraging me, praying for me, and everything with all the stuff going on. And today I wanted to jump right into a very hot topic recently because... Pastor Bill Hughes has been going, uh, going very, uh, I would say, tough uh, on the general conference in the last few months, especially. Now he's done that over the years. He's had, you know, apostasy and Adventism and things like that, but he's really turned up the heat here in the last few years. And I think the reason why is because there's there's a, a deafening silence out there. There's a deafening silence out there for people that will just speak up and talk about the pro the obvious, blatant problems uh, that are going on in the church. I mean, we, we are we are far beyond uh, what we would even consider apostasy now. It's just it's just blatant, in your face, high-handed, false doctrine and sin that is going on in uh, the general conference and in the Seventh Day Adventist body at large and some of us are in the conference some of us are in self-supporting ministries and and we watch these things and and we sigh and cry for the abominations that be done in the land but few of us uh, few of us especially what I would call the rock stars of Adventism and you know who they are um, uh, there's there's a deafening silence on on trumpet blasters so that's why Pastor Bill Hughes has really felt a strong pull. Actually, he was 
he was doing a sermon series and still is doing a sermon series that's really following a topic I think is really important, which is really following chapter by chapter the book of De The Desire of Ages and talking about what was going on in Jesus's life throughout his, his ministry, throughout the Gospels, which is what that book is about. And it's an amazing book that gives you a lot of insight. And when you see scripture and the spirit of prophecy side by side in reading that book, it's just second to none. I would say it's the best by far. I can't even think of another book like it um, besides, besides the Bible Gospels themselves. But a book outside of the Bible that's on the life of Christ, I can't even think of a peer that stands near it. So he's been doing something on the desire of ages, but he's also, it's called uh, Jesus's life, and he's, he's in the 20s right now in parts. And he's been doing that for some time, but he's, he's seeing these ecumenical charters being passed. He's seeing these false doctrines being, being percolated throughout the Seventh-day Adventist body. And you're hearing, you're hearing almost nothing from the laity, and you're hearing absolutely nothing from the people you should be hearing things from on these things. Um, so that's why Pastor Bill Hughes and others who are out there, who are sounding forth the trumpet. And I will mention a few of their names here. Andy Roman of Advent Messenger. He is sounding forth the trumpet. Arnie Suntag is sounding forth the trumpet and talking about, bravely talking about, the apostasies that are going on in the church. Not because any one of these men want to do damage to the church, but because they want they want revival and reformation that's what we all want we want revival and reformation we want to rest the 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 grasp of of the church from the devil and from his antichrist which is which is where it seems to be right now i mean you literally you have that infamous picture online of of the interfaith director, Ganun Diop, shaking hands with the papacy himself. I mean, what? how do you think God feels about that? And there's a lot of people out there, sometimes they feel uncomfortable with the message, and I can understand that. It's not a comfortable message. But what they do is they try to assassinate Pastor Bill Hughes' character, or my character, or Paul Prano's character, or... Andy Roman's character I've heard be assassinated. I've actually also heard Arnie Suntag's character attempted to be assassinated in different ways and just to defame these people. And you know what that tells you, folks? When someone has to say, when someone has to infer somebody's motive on something, they're totally disregarding the actual subject matter at hand. The subject matter is whether this apostasy, whether this this is going on or not, or whether you know such and such is time setting, or whether or not this is a false doctrine, or is this this is ecumenism? What's going on here? It, it's a total disregard. It's a it's a decoy, a sidestep of the argument, right? And to try to get you to focus on the person giving the argument instead of asking yourself. 
whether you like the way it's packaged, if you think the person was maybe a bit too aggressive, if you think the person pulled too many punches and wasn't aggressive enough, uh, regardless of what you think about the person, are you asking yourself, are the things that they are saying, are they true? Are they true? In other words, forget about the instrument that's being used and focus on uh, what's actually being discussed. Forget the vessel, focus on the substance, right? So that's what you're seeing a lot of not happening. And that's very sad because that means that people want to reject this message of warning and trumpet blast and watchmen on the wall blowing the trumpet, trying to warn the people that going against God, God's will is going to result in catastrophe. It's going to result in judgment. It's going to result in, in God removing his protection. All those things, none of those things we want, right? So when someone makes that argument, you can know for sure that that person has no argument because if they had an argument, they would be able to pick apart the topic, the subject. They would be able to defend um, their side, right? But if they can't do that, the next thing that you do is you attack the character of the person. This, ex this is exactly what Lucifer did to God in heaven, right? He couldn't he couldn't necessarily point out that doing wrong things was not good, right? He couldn't point out that sin versus God's law was there was no real argument there. So what he had to do was he had to insinuate the doubt into the minds of the angels. You can read about this in the first chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets. But he had to insinuate doubt into the minds of the angels that God had this law because he liked power. It was just authoritativeness. It was just self-glorification of people having to follow his law because he said so. And it's not because anything bad will, ha will happen if you disobey that law other than God being a tyrant and destroying you. So that was the whole argument there, right? And him denying Christ and not wanting to wanting to be equal with God himself, as Isaiah chapter 14 talks about. And that led to open rebellion. That that sort of thinking led to open rebellion. It led him to being cast out of heaven. And then eventually he used his deception to deceive our first parents. Now, was his argumentation correct? Of course not. It wasn't. Now, which mode of our... Of, well, he had a lot of people that followed him, right? I mean, he had a third of the angels, according to Revelation chapter 12, follow him. So what was his mode of argumentation? It was a character assassination, folks. Character assassination. That's why I always stay clear of character assassinations as much as possible with any person because that is a pretty much a guarantee that you you lose the argument in the long run because it means you have no argument when you focus on the vessel giving the argument when you say well Andy Roman has made mistakes in the past so he's just you know he's just bitter 
or Pastor Bill Hughes, you know, he was disfellowshipped. So he's just bitter and he's he's on the attack because of that. Well, that's fine. You can say that. Um, now, let, let's just say, for the sake of argument, let's just say it's true. Let's say Andy Roman and Bill Hughes, uh, you know, they have a... They have an axe to grind. Let's just say, for argumentation, now I know that's not the case, at least with Pastor Bill Hughes, because I know him on a personal level, but let's just say, for argument's sake, it's true. Does that change anything that he's discussed in his apostasy uh, against, uh, apostasy and Adventism sermons that he has made? Doesn't change one thing, does it? Not one thing. And I want to talk about something that's really, really important. And something that always constantly comes up. Especially especially in Adventism uh, when you're talking to the laity, but especially in conference churches. And that is on the entire concept of supporting apostasy. And I mean supporting it with tithes and offerings. It's a very, very hot topic, and I'm not going to be able to do it justice here. I've been reading, I've been reading recently this book, History of Protestantism by J.A. Wiley, and wow, what an amazing book it is. It's, uh, it's basically a longer version of the Great Controversy, and you can tell this man, J.A. Wiley, he, he is a, he, he is someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ very much. And he talks in, in one of his chapters about John Wycliffe. And Wycliffe has a, a, a mode of argumentation here that I think I need to share with all of you because it's really important. And I, I think it really puts things in perspective on supporting apostasy. And so I want to I start off, before I get there, I want to start off with a review and herald quote from November 10th, 1896. The pen of inspiration says, So the Lord has imparted to us heaven's richest treasure in giving us Jesus. With him, he has given us all things richly to enjoy. The productions of the earth, the bountiful harvest, the treasures of gold and silver are his gifts. Houses and lands, food and clothing, he has placed in the possession of men. He asks us to acknowledge him as the giver of all things, and for this reason he says, of all your possessions, I reserve a tenth for myself, besides gifts and offerings, which are to be brought into my storehouse. This is the provision God has made for carrying forward the work of the gospel. Okay, now this is not typically the, the quote you hear all the time, but sometimes people will reference quotes like this in reference to God's storehouse. And what they'll say is God's storehouse is the church. So I, it basically, it's an act of faith, you know, the widow and the two mites. It's an act of faith to put the money into the church. And though, even though you see apostasy on a grand scale, that it's an act of faith to put the money into the church because you're supporting, you know, the good parts of the church and things like that. Well, Mrs. White makes it very clear here, this last sentence, says this is the provision God has made for carrying forward the work of the gospel. Now I want to ask you folks, 
and this might be an uncomfortable question, but I want to ask you, is the Seventh-day Adventist Conference Church, are they carrying forward the work of the gospel? And that's not just a general work of the gospel. Every church has an understanding of a work of the work of the gospel. And many churches, many churches who are not Seventh-day Adventists, do carry forward the work of the gospel up to their understanding. But the Seventh-day Adventist church has been given a special commission in the last days to preach a special message. It's the first, the second, and especially the third angel's message, which encompasses the other two. Now, I want to ask again, do you feel that the Seventh-day Adventist Church General Conference is carrying forward the work of the gospel that is present truth, the third angel's message, commissioned as we were meant to carry it out? I think clearly the answer is no. Not when you're accepting $72 million from the government, which is a union of church and state at that point. Not when you are involved up to your eyeballs in ecumenism. Not when, not when general conference leaders are spending God's tithe money which is supposed to carry the third angel's message to the world, when they're spending that money on luxury flights, hotels, and dinners to visit the papacy and to have interfaith dialogue with Christians. There's nothing about the Antichrist power, the beast power of Revelation that's Christian. The gospel work is not meant to be teaching spiritual formation to pastors in universities. And by the way, Ted Wilson voted that in. He was on the board that voted that in. If you're looking for that information, it's in the Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Ministerial and Theological Education from 2001. Again, that's the Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Ministerial and Theological Education. There, from 2001, if you go to page 37, you see that spiritual formation was part of the implemented training regimen for pastors. You find that on page 37 in the Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Ministerial and Theological Education from 2001. Page 37, you see that spiritual formation was part of the implemented training regimen, again, for pastors. And if you go to page 57, which is in the appendix, so it's, it's kind of hidden in a way, but it's appendix B, page 57, you find that Ted's Wils Ted Wilson's name is on the board that is responsible for the educational curriculum. Uh, in other words, Ted Wilson, who has preached against spiritual formation, has on the left hand preached against spiritual formation and, and on the right hand 
implementing spiritual formation to be taught to the pastors in the universities. And if you want to see that information yourself, I highly recommend, shoot me an email. I have the, uh, the PDF version of this. And again, page 37 and 57, you can see it for yourself. I'll shoot me an email. I'll send it to you. Or you can look it up online. Again, it's called the Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Ministerial and Theological Education from 2001. So those that's not carrying forward the work of the gospel. That's what God's storehouse was intended to be. This is why Mrs. White, even in her day, began to accept tithes. The whites began to accept tithes from people because they didn't want to put it into the general conference because they felt like they were squandering it. And they wanted it to go to the work. At first she said no, but eventually she understood why they wanted to give it to her. And she did take those, those financial funds and she put them to, the, to herself, her and James. Put it to the work of the gospel themselves. Would you say any one of those people didn't give into God's storehouse? Of course they did. They sidestepped the ones who were in apostasy at that time, which was the general conference in Mrs. White's day. And they went to the group that was actually doing the work, which was the Whites. And I want to read to you an argumentation given by John Wycliffe talking about the responsibilities of the clergy. Now, this argumentation he had against Rome, but the principles that are laid out in there are just phenomenal. And I think, I really think each and every one of us needs to hear it for ourselves. This is what it says on page 100 on the history of Protestantism. And this is volume one. My particular... My particular copy, set of copies, has three volumes. I've seen them in four volumes. So the page 100 might not necessarily be correct in every single one. But I want to be clear here so that you guys can find this information yourself. This is the history of Protestantism. And this is chapter 9. And it's called The Question of Church Property or Wycliffe's Views on Church Property and Church Reform. So, page 100 in my book, this is what it says. From where flowed many corruptions of the church, the pride, the luxury, the indolence of the churchmen, manifestly from these enormous riches, sacred uses, so was it pleaded. The more the wealth increased, the less sacred the uses to which it was devoted, and the more flagrant the neglect of the duties which those who possessed it were appointed to discharge. By Wycliffe's own words, will best convey to us the idea of his feelings on this point, and the height to which the evil had grown. Prelates and priests, he says, cry aloud and write that the king has no jurisdiction or power over the persons and goods of holy church. And when the king and the secular lords, perceiving that their ancestors' alms are wasted in pomp and pride, gluttony, and other vanities, wish to take again the superfluity of temporal goods and to help the land and themselves and their tenants, these worldly clerks bawl loudly that they ought to be cursed for intromitting with the goods of the holy church, as if secular lords and commons were no part of holy church. 
And again, he complains that property, which was not too holy to be spent in gluttony and other vanities, was yet accounted too holy to bear the burdens of the state and contribute to the defense of the realm. By their new law of decretals, says he, they have ordained that our clergy shall pay no subsidy nor tax for keeping of our king and realm, without leave and assent of the worldly priest of Rome. And yet many times this proud worldly priest is an enemy of our land, and secretly maintains our enemies in war against us with our own gold. And thus they make us an alien priest, and he the proudest of all priests, to be the chief lord of the whole of the goods which clerks possess in the realm, and that is the greatest part thereof. Wycliffe was not a mere corrector of abuses, he was a reformer of institutions, and accordingly he laid down a principle which menaced the very foundations of this great evil. Those acres, now covering half the face of England, those cathedrals and conventual buildings, those tithes and revenues which constitute the goods of the church, are not, Wycliffe affirmed, in any legal or strict sense, the church's property. She neither bought it, nor did she win it by service in the field, nor did she receive it as a feudal, unconditional gift. It is the alms of the English nation. The church is but the administrator of this property. The nation is the real proprietor. And the nation is bound through the king and parliament, its representatives, to see that the church devotes its wealth to the objects for which it was given to her. And if it shall find that it has... It is abused or diverted to other objects, it may recall it. The ecclesiastic who becomes immoral and fails to fulfill the duties of his office forfeits that office with all its temporalities. And the same law which applies to the individual applies to the whole corporation or church. Such in brief was the doctrine of Wycliffe. So, as you can see, now the argumentation there is between England, who had given much land to the church, and paying of tithes, and, and different alms, property, etc., that they had given to the church. He was pointing out there that once a church betrays its trust, right, once a church goes into apostasy or immorality, it no longer retains all the special privileges and authority that it once had. So in other words, as long as a church is doing the will of God, and to put it in Mrs. White's words, carrying forward the work of the gospel, our special message in these last days for the Seventh-day Adventist church, so long as it is doing that, then it does claim the authority of being God's storehouse. It does claim the authority of taking the tithes and distributing them throughout uh, wherever it needs to go to carry forward that work. However, when a church falls into apostasy, when its leaders are blatantly treasonous against heaven itself, then people no longer should support that institution. And I know that's a bombshell statement there. That's a bombshell statement. But that is how Reformation is really won. 
because the power of the purse is one of the most, if not the most powerful weapon that any laity person has. And it has worked in the past. There is a reason why the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. It's because the withdrawing of those funds, right, and the the putting it to use to the work of the Lord's will will cause even those who don't agree with the carrying forward of the work of the gospel to, to go back to, to the truth and simplicity of the message just so they can get the money back. So, in other words, if a... If a leader, if a pastor has become openly apostate and immoral, they have forfeited their position, right? They don't, they don't, just because, just because they got, um, just because they went to school and they became a pastor at one point and studied, doesn't mean that they, they're automatically a pastor forever. If they, if they betray that trust, then that's exactly what they've done. And they should no longer be supported. And it's the same, again, the example here with Wycliffe is the actual state, which is a bad relationship, a state and a church together. But the principle's solid. The state had given the church uh, a bunch of property and money. The church was using that money while the, while the country was dying, right? The church, England... While the country was dying, the church was using that money for extravagant feasts and pompous displays and ceremonies. Their coffers overflowing with gold. They weren't they weren't helping the people. They weren't obviously they weren't preaching the gospel to anybody. They were just taking in the money. And every every little ceremony that they had was another way for them to get more money. And so what John Wycliffe was saying, and he stood alone, really, in this. He stood alone. Uh, he was basically saying, you know, if, if you're giving offerings and tithes and alms to the church, you are responsible. You are responsible that that, that work is going towards what you intended. If you want to support the gospel, then support the gospel. But don't support apostasy. Because when you give, and this is not just some, uh, you know, underhanded way of me saying, oh, you need to, you know, you need to give money to us. No, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. You know, you, you give money, you give your tithe to whatever and whoever you and the Lord work out as to where that money needs to go. Sometimes Mrs. White says it's good to keep to hang on to your tithe and to go distribute it to the poor yourselves. That way, it's uh, you're taking responsibility for it. But she would not be, she would not approve of people uh, blindly paying into and supporting the apostasy that's going on today, the ecumenism, the spiritual formation, as I've mentioned, accepting money from the government while at the same time being unwilling to defend their own people against mandates which are which go against liberty of conscience everything that protestantism stands for and she definitely would not support the destruction of the book the great controversy where where every verse 
every passage that had to do with the evils of the papacy and identifying him as the Antichrist have been taken out. And Ted Wilson, again, spearheaded that work, and he had the audacity to say, to call that work the Great Controversy Project. It boggles the mind. And again, where are the rock stars? The rock stars of Adventism, the ones whose sermons and sermon series we love so much, they're silent. They're not talking about this. We just have few, a handful. I can count them on one hand. What's going on is not just apostasy by these leaders and by the laity that support and uphold and make excuses for them. It's high treason, folks, against God, against everything that God has commissioned the Seventh-day Adventist Church to be. We're out of time, folks. But I hope there's been some food for thought for you. I know I'm probably upset some of you, and I apologize. Uh, I, I'm not trying to upset anybody, but sometimes salt agitates, and we are to be salt of the earth. So God bless. I love you, and we will be back next week, God willing.